You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. The term monocrop is a bit of a dirty word in many circles and possibly for good reason because we've seen some of the environmental destruction caused by this method of farming in the past. But I wonder if it's really as simple as monocrop's bad, or if there's really more to the story here. Our guest is Kevin Falter, who's a science communicator that hosts the Talking Biotech podcast, where he speaks with academics in the agricultural and biomedical fields for a science-based assessment of new technology and the future of food. He's also a professor at the Horticultural Sciences Department at the University of Florida. Welcome to the show, mate. Yeah, thanks for having me aboard. This is really great. Yeah, no workers, it's going to be awesome. So can we start by defining the term monoculture, Kevin? Yeah, so monoculture really implies a uniform genetics across a large area of agricultural land. So what it basically is saying is that all the plants are genetically identical or highly similar. And there's a lot of advantages and disadvantages to growing crops that way. So what's an example of a monoculture crop? It's kind of surprising when you talk about it, but one of the main ones that comes to mind for me is bananas. Bananas um, are all arising from a single clone, meaning one plant years ago gave rise to what we know as the Cavendish banana. So the dessert banana banana of commerce is uh, grown all over the world. And it basically is all from one single plant that was just propagated over and over again. They're, genetic identi- they're genetically identical. And so all of those clones are helpful for bananas because it's an extremely good banana. Farmers can understand how to grow it and keeps the price very low for the consumer. Hmm. So there must be a reason why farmers do grow all of one variety of a plant. Yeah, there's quite a few actually. And, and there's, there's two you know, main ones up top. Is one is because as a farmer, you have so much variability that comes at you from the environment. High temperature, low temperature, drought, heat, flooding, you name it. And so if you can control the genetics, it gives you something that gives you reproducibility and predictability. And so farmers like to use certain varieties. They find the ones that work very well on their soil and on their land. They find the ones that are amenable to the uh, labor resources they have. So when you sit down and look at it, it's a question of, do I need to manage five or six different kinds of crops, or can I do one that I understand what it needs when the market window fits it? There's a lot of great examples of that. So th- there are opportunities to, for farmers to make their lives a little bit less difficult by having a single crop that they understand very well. Hmm. And I've heard you speaking about roses. You know, there might be certain times of the year when a rose is really at its peak value. Sure. Like, uh, you know, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day. Roses uh, come from, uh, in most cases, a very specific genetic base. And that's because they they are an outstanding product that has excellent harvest, post-harvest quality that uh, you can cut them and they maintain for days, if not weeks. Uh, Easy to ship that they are predictable. It doesn't do you any good to have pumpkins on November 1st and roses on <laughs> February 18th. You know, it's uh, very helpful for us to be able to predict when yields will occur. And that's sometimes why farmers rely on specific genetics. 
Mm, absolutely. And you were sort of also talking there about they all have the same needs. So it's sort of like, you know, we're not going to want two plants planted next to each other that have different water needs or different sort of other sorts of needs, soil needs and stuff like that. What we're going to need if we're going to be able to make money from a crop is that they're going to be able to work sort of all together. And if you've got a monocrop, that's going to be a lot easier. And that's one of the advantages, right? You find out what works on your land and your space. And for some farmers, it's almost almost religious, their, their adherence to a specific brand or a specific type of hybrid. This corn always worked for us, nothing else did. And farmers trial, um, uh, typically on their farm, they'll trial other seeds just to see what is next best and better you know, coming forward. But typically in the major areas that they grow, they'll decide on one type that works really well. And, that, and I'm speaking there about say, big acreage agronomic crops like corn or soybeans or canola. But there's a lot of good examples of horticultural crops that are some of the most well-established monocultures. Grapes, you know, the wine grapes, they don't want new varieties. They want lots of the old varieties, the mm-hmm. Pinots, the Pinot Noirs, the Cabernet grapes. These are some of the most established and ancient monocrops around. Mm. Absolutely. And when we're talking about grapes, these types of plants are going to actually need pesticides. It's very difficult to grow a certain kind of a grape variety without using pesticides. Well, that's true. Yeah. Even uh, organic agriculture uses specific pesticides to control fungus and other issues in grapes. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, on a small farm that has a very um, biodiverse polyculture. We grow dozens of different varieties. I think we have 300 different varieties of trees. And different varieties of fruit trees, not just different kinds of fruit trees, different varieties. And for us, it's about spreading out the market over the year. But the downside of that is that you have to be able to scout every tree for their differential dependence on or differential problems with pests, differential needs for fertilizer. When you can monocrop it, it really allows you to have the most efficiency in production. And that's why we tend to see that on larger acreage crops like bananas, potatoes, corn, soybeans. Hmm. So what sort of effects do monocultures have on the land, Kevin? Well, that's the big issue, right? Is that when you have something with common genetics, you're going to have the same demand on the soil year after year. You're going to also decrease uh, biodiversity in that field. Different crops will bring different pests and different uh, other insects to come consume those pests. And when you cut the different types that are there, when you cut it to a monoculture, you're really cutting the diversity of different insects in that field. And that's been shown pretty well. At, at the same time, it's a, it allows you to be able to control pests a little bit easier because of the lower diversity of pests. So you may just need one certain type of approach with one certain type of a pest. It's easier to scout for something you understand. And mm-hmm. when you have years of, data that you know, well, it's around the middle of May, so I need to be looking for this particular beetle. You know, that really helps you manage your crop and helps a farmer remain profitable. Absolutely. So, you mentioned effects on the soil there. Can you go a little bit deeper into that, please? Well, a couple of different ways that, that, that we think about that. You're going to have, if you have a monocrop that's been established, and we're talking even in this case, just say if you grow corn year after year, you know, just a regular hybrid corn or soybeans year after year. You're going to change the uh, microbiota associated in the soil. You're also going to change the partitioning of nutrients that are present. 
especially to, if your fertilizer fertilizer regimes are minimal, uh, you're going to change the micro the micronutrients that are available in that soil. And so a lot of these uh, year after year cropping systems with monoculture can have those kinds of deleterious effects on the soil in terms of its microbial diversity as well as its nutrient availability. Hmm. So I'm not sure how it's done over there in the US, but over here in Australia, we've sort of come up with a few different ways that I've noticed that farmers are doing things. So we're talking about things like no dig. We're talking about crop rotations, cover crops, things like that. Do you guys do that sort of thing over there? Yeah, and it's becoming uh, more and more, more and more familiar. But those mostly for animal, or I'm sorry, annual crops. If you're mm. looking at things, you know, cover crops, you can't really do too much with that in a tree crop production system, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't dig up your peaches and move them over there and put in cover crops for the year. <laughs> but at least in in annual crop rotations, you're seeing more and more interest in cover crops, especially for smaller horticultural crop plantings. You're also seeing counter-seasonal rotations. So in our strawberry fields, you'll see cantaloupes or onions or something else done counter-seasonally, or what really are preferred are nitrogen fixers. And mm-hmm. you're seeing a lot more cover crops that are nitrogen fixing. So whether it's clovers, sun hemp, you know, the crotillaria species, these have the ability to put nitrogen into the ground. So that way when, and then when you till them in, or at least uh, break them down, you are lending green manure to the soil. You're giving more organic matter to hold water and hold nutrients. So these are really good strategies that help to mitigate the effects of continual seasonal after seasonal monocropping. Mm. And something that I've heard other farmers say is that having a monocrop means that you're draining the same minerals out of the soil every time. And that's true of different crops that are especially hard on specific micros. You know, are there specific crops that, and I, and I can't, get one to come to mind right now, but something that is especially heavy on boron or something that takes out selenium or some of these micros that have very profound effects on the plant, chromium, very important effects inside the plant, but are there at exceedingly small amounts, both in the soil and in the plant itself. Yet year after year, monocropping could have the potential to bias and skew the, the diversity of minerals or the micronutrients available in that soil. Hmm, absolutely. So that would make sense, wouldn't it? Because not all plants are going to have the same needs. That's right. And, and all of them uh, also leave behind different you know, material at the end of the season. So it's really, there's no one size fits all. And we speak in big generalities here because we want to do better. And so trying hmm. to understand some of these bottlenecks that monocropping can create does help us think about this a little bit uh, larger scale for longer sustainability. Hmm, absolutely. So I'd like to switch up a little bit now and ask the question of what happens when a monoculture experiences a serious pest or disease, Kevin? Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, and I can go back to bananas again. Bananas, you know, and this is a really cool story because in the case of bananas, the Cavendish banana, which all comes from a clone, is being killed by a clone. So a <laughs> single clonal colony of Fusarium moxisporum, it's a a single fungus that's all clonal that's killing the clonal bananas. And in the earlier in the uh, 20th century, the Fusarium tropical race one took out all of the cultivated banana called Gros Michel, which was, you know, Big Michael, which was grown all over the world as the major banana of commerce. That's really relegated to a few spots now in like the Congo and in South America and in my backyard. 
But other than that, is it's a very rare banana. The major banana of commerce is the Cavendish, which is being taken out by tropical race four of the same <laughs> fungus. So th- those are great examples. Uh, the Irish potato famine, the uh, Phytophthora infestans, which um, which clonal potatoes don't have the kind of resistance that you find in natural potato varieties. The diseases we're seeing in citrus, it's uh, some citrus doesn't get it, some wild citrus, but that's not what's in the genetics of the major juice oranges, which are really very related and maybe not all a monoculture per se, but still very narrow genetics. And, and that's why there's such a problem. Hmm, absolutely. I mean, we've bred plants for specific characteristics, but the ancestors of those plants have evolved to have sort of wider genetics and be able to sort of withstand wider pressures. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, we can go out into we can go out into the forest and find things like strawberries growing just fine in sand with no fertilizer, but they make funny little fruits that aren't that fall apart a few hours after you pick them. And mm. so in during the process of domestication, you develop uh, essentially what's known as domestication syndrome. You have a suite of traits that consumers want and that farmers want most of all, but then you compromise these other potential traits of disease resistance other things that you may leave behind. And so this has really been the problem leading us to relatively recent times that we had continuing narrowing of the germplasm, fewer and fewer genes in that gene pool. And that's really started to reverse now, but for a long time, that was the case. Hmm. So what do you mean by it starting to reverse, Kevin? Well, over the last 20 years, we've seen a real surge in the use of genomics. So genomics is this practice where we can take a look at all the DNA and all the genes in an organism in a snapshot. We can take a look at all the genes that are expressed in a snapshot. We can understand all the proteins that are present. These are really powerful tools because they allow us to assess what is the hardware in that plant and what genes are turned on and off. And if we know that, we can start to look into wild populations and say, how, are, how is the wild one different from the cultivated one? And do we see little bits of DNA in the wild varieties that associate with the traits like disease resistance? And if we see that, it allows us to breed much faster. It allows us to take plants from the wild and incorporate the genetics that we lost, kind of reclaiming the disease resistance, the flavors, the aromas, all the stuff that modern annual intensive breeding took away. We're starting to be able to put it back in. Mm. That's absolutely fascinating. So is that sexually? Is that done sexually or sort of through in a lab? It's kind of both. It's done sexually in a lab sometimes. Sometimes you got to get them in the right mood. You know, sometimes animals are like, <laughs> or plants are like pandas. You know, the majority of this, this is done through traditional breeding. And the big problem sometimes is that the plants in the, that are wild, you know, the great mountain variety of cherry that has resistance to all the diseases doesn't flower at the same time as the one down on the beach or the one that grows in the, in the vast orchards. And so it's a question of sometimes having to use a laboratory intermediate to do that cross and mm. maybe be able to germinate embryos in a Petri dish, that kind of thing. Mm. But the basic idea is, is using sexual uh, exchange to be able to get the new varieties and maybe be able to bring in the genetics that were once lost. Hmm. So when we're talking sexually, for people who don't know, what we're talking about is sort of male genetics and female genetics within the flower. That's right. Taking some pollen from plant that lives up in the mountains 
and putting it on the appropriate surfaces of the plant that lives down in the sea level orchard and Mm -hmm. thereby coming up with a next generation that contains both sets of genetics. And the funny part is, is that that next set of genetics, you know, the trees that are not improved, the ones out in the wild that have the traits you want, they're really going to impact the horticultural quality of the, of the fruit or the, of the horticultural products. Like fruit mm-hmm. is a big example. You make that cross, the fruit all of a sudden doesn't taste good. It's small, um, doesn't last long. All the traits that we wanted are gone, but it takes mm-hmm. years and years of repeated breeding cycles to be able to keep the one gene that you want maybe for disease resistance or, you know, heat or cold resistance while still keeping all the good fruit traits. And that's why plant breeding is so important and such a long-term endeavor. So going back to the pests and diseases again, I guess one of the problems that people associate with monocultures is a pest resistance because when you spray the same pest with the same product or the same chemical, one that sort of one in a billion pest or insect or whatever it is is going to have a natural resistance, and then that resistant gene is being selected for within the population. Yeah, that's exactly right. Is that you have, and when we talk about pests, we're talking about weeds, we're talking about insects, maybe nematodes, we're talking about bacteria and fungus, viruses. You know, when we take steps to select against, to combat something, we're actually selecting a, we're actually selecting a very, a very strong selection pressure on that. So that anything that finds a genetic workaround now can take over very quickly. And we see that, you know, we have with bacteria that double in numbers every 30 minutes or fungus every hour or two or insects every day. We can see our selection pressures allow um, pests to become extremely problematic extremely quickly. In weeds, you have something like Palmer amaranth that continued use of herbicides um, on a very strong level because the technology worked well, allowed Palmer amaranth, which makes whatever it is, 100,000 seeds, to now become very dominant. Because if one of those seeds is resistance from a mutation, that now will become the dominant individual in that field. And the herbicide doesn't work anymore. The example for right now is these variants of COVID-19 virus or the uh, Mm. SARS-CoV-2 virus, that the variants that make them slightly more contagious but less lethal make the most potent viruses because they spread from person to person very quickly without killing the host. And that keeps them in the population more because the selection allows them to spread very quickly. So when we talk about alternatives to monocrops, we're sort of talking about polycultures. Can you describe what that means, Kevin? Sure. Well, polycultures refers to the ability to grow compatible plants in the same space. So there's a couple of different things this means. There are strategies where you have direct interaction of different types of plants together in the same immediate space. So intercropping. Good example would be having a nitrogen fixer and a nitrogen consumer growing in amongst each other. In on the African continent, you'll see soybeans and bananas sometimes growing together because one fixes nitrogen for the other, and this is uh, sometimes advantageous. Other examples would be permaculture, where you're, you're able to put in multiple compatible plant types that complement each other in potentially attracting different diversity of insects and, and pests, other pests, that actually work against each other. So one plant being the host of ladybugs, another one of aphids, and one going to consume the other. 
You know, they're one attracting larvae of a certain butterfly type during one time of the year, another a different time of year. These are all the ways that having biodiversity can help uh, in some ways keep the plants more productive with fewer inputs. Mm, Absolutely. And I guess that that sounds like a really beautiful thing, you know, polycultures, you know, having biodiversity. But I guess at what point does that become unrealistic? Yeah, but that, when you start talking about profitable production on large scale, it becomes extremely difficult because how do you have large scale production is based on efficiency and it becomes very difficult to be able to move through a biodiverse farm and have extremely efficient production. And some people do a good job with that, but it's a lot of work. It's a lot of extra labor and it can be done. You can do it for maybe small scale production for local consumption, for restaurants, farmers, markets, that kind of thing. It works really well, but it would be extremely difficult to feed larger populations, you know, like a large urban population from that kind of model. Hmm. And I guess I like having the sort of the $10 loaf of bread from down at the markets, which may have been grown in a polyculture or in a permaculture environment. But then sometimes I also like going down to the supermarket and buying the $2.50 loaf of bread. Yeah, that's a great example. I mean, it it allows you to be able to decide, you know, what is it that you're, what's what's most important to you. And uh, as you know, my wife sells at farmers markets every weekend, and she'll show up with a great diversity of root vegetables and carrots and all these different things that people come in and really enjoy. That they they pay a little bit of a premium, but they know that it was grown on a diverse farm with a, with substantial biodiversity but also very diverse crops. And we're not beating the soil up here. You know, there's a good rotation mm-hmm. that happens every year. And uh, we use cover crops in the summers. Uh, that's our, the time that we can't grow anything is when everybody else can. So our summer is a time for, the, for it to rest. Mm-hmm. But, and that's when we use cover crops. But that's, mm-hmm. it allows the consumer to have more options. And that's what's most important. Uh, some folks can never afford the $10 loaf of bread. And it's important for food security to keep good food affordable. Hmm. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So maybe some people saying that the government should outlaw monocultures is not actually necessarily such a good idea for society. I think it's a horrible idea. It would be really bad for potatoes and wine and um, bananas and apples. Some of the favorite apple varieties that are on old trees, you know, of orchards and orchards of, of older trees, you know, they're monocultures. and you see this across horticultural crops. So I think the bigger thing that we should push is not how do you get rid of monocultures by banning them or by working against them, but how do we use the modern tools of genomics? How do we support public breeding programs? How do we accelerate genetic improvement of crops using uh, gene editing and some of our new technologies like that to create diversity? And how can we come up with new and diverse crops for those scenarios through accelerating breeding. Now, how do we fold in the genetics from wild varieties that we couldn't do 20 years ago very efficiently? We can do that now. And so our way out of this isn't to legislate away monocrops. It's to dissolve monocrops with new genetic diversity that's brought in through improved varieties. Hmm. That's beautiful, Kevin. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, that, that, that really is the solution. You know, too many people want to dial this backwards and say, you know, let's let's retreat in our technology. But I think let's use the best technologies to 
to solve this problem by increasing the varieties. Because then you can start to tailor them towards specific growing regions, specific numbers of chilling hours, specific climates. There's so many things we can do once we start to accelerate genetic improvement through breeding. Totally. Now, there's a fun one I always like to ask at the end. It's a spot to plug. It's a spot to advocate for a change in the world or recommend a charity. Is there anything else that you'd like the listeners to know about? Wow. So, uh, so you want me to do that one? Is something to plug? Something to, is that ball in my court? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, this is, so, what do you want to tell us about? What, are, what do you know that we don't know? Ah, what do I know? that? Well, I think that there's a lot of dismal news that goes on around food and farming. And a lot of critics and a lot of folks say that, you know, that it's doom and gloom. But the bottom line is more people in the world have food security than ever before. And we have never enjoyed a more diverse amount of fruits and vegetables available in more seasons uh, in the industrialized world. And it's getting much better in the developing world. And I think we need to thank farmers for what they do. We need to protect farmers and their rights to farm what they feel like farming. Let them make the choices. This is a really a really great time for food, celebrating the most diverse and richest time uh, food supply in human history. So let's think critically about these questions and think how we can continue to go forward to make food more accessible and more diverse for everybody. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Kevin. What an incredible episode. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me aboard. Yeah, no workers, mate. My pleasure. So it turns out that monocrops can be bad but they aren't necessarily the most evil thing in the world. There are different types of monocrops too. For example, a vineyard or an orchard is probably going to have a bunch of different types of grasses and all sorts of flowering weeds between the rows. Whereas a grain monocrop probably won't have any of that. It's probably just going to be an open field of one species of plant. A friend of mine on Twitter, Adam Coffey, who runs a cattle station with his wife in the Northern Territory, made a good point that even though a monocrop of wheat may only be one species, there can still be quite a lot of genetic variation within that one species. With that being said, a polyculture environment or natural scrubland or something like that is probably going to host a wider biodiversity. If you listen to this podcast on an Apple device, can I please ask you a huge favour? Can you please go onto iTunes and give us a five-star review and leave a nice little comment there telling us what you like about the show?